<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, it's just getting weirder and weirder out there. Greetings from Portland, Oregon. Tom Hartman here with you. Beautiful day up here in the Pacific Northwest, but wow. Our country continues to be torn apart at so many levels by this insane behavior coming out of the Republican Party. It's just and Fox News and right-wing hate radio. Let me just provide you with a beginning point for all this. The Federal Reserve just released statistics about who's getting rich and how in the United States. And a reporter, a guy with the Economic Policy Institute, did an analysis of this and found that if this current trend, which began with Reagan, right? Keep in mind, from World War II, until the 1980s, during that period of time, the middle class, the wealth of the middle class, and the income of the middle class, you know, wealth is everything you own, income is your paycheck. Both the wealth of the middle class and the income of the middle class grew more rapidly than the wealth or income of the top 10%. And people in poverty were accumulating wealth and income at a higher rate than were the very rich. I mean, the very rich were getting rich, make no mistake about it. And, you know, in terms of absolute dollars, of course, they were making more than the middle class or the poor, but the middle class and the poor were actually growing really rapidly. And a lot of this was because of the labor movement. It was a really substantial thing. So then Reagan comes along in 1980. Reagan comes along in 1980 and starts this new program. He says, you know, we're going to take this whole Keynesian economics model, which back in 1776, Adam Smith laid out in Wealth of Nations and said, this is how it works, right? And Theory of Moral Sentiments, his two major books. We're going to take this Keynesian model of economics and we're going to throw it away. And we're going to take this country back to feudalism, back to, to where the rich own everything, including the workers. And he completely rejected Keynesianism and said, no, this is trickle-down economics. We're going to go back to horse and sparrow economics, is what it was called in the late 1800s. 
when it was being sold as, well, if you feed the big fat horses even more oats, there'll be a little more left over in their poop for the sparrows. It was literally the sales pitch. This was before cars. Reagan reinvented it as, you know, some will trickle down. But what this economist found was that at this rate, right, this, this trend line that changed with the Reagan presidency in the early 1980s, used to be the middle class was getting wealthier every single year. Kids knew that they would do better than their parents. Parents knew that they were doing better than their grandparents. The middle class was strong and healthy and prosperous. A black middle class was emerging rapidly, particularly after the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and after Brown v. Board, you know, in the 50s and 60s. Everything was moving in a positive direction right up until the 1980s. And then Reagan said, we're going to kill the unions because they're a major source of funding for the Democratic Party. And what happens? The middle class starts to lose their wealth. I mean, the middle class just starts to fall apart. Very, very straightforward process. It's, it shouldn't surprise anybody. I mean, from 1989, which was, yeah, it was the first year of the, uh, of the Bush presidency. So, you know, functionally the last year of the Reagan presidency. Bush Sr. was sworn into, into office in January of 89. So from the last year of the Reagan presidency until 2018, the bottom half of Americans, $900 billion in wealth, in the actual wealth that they have. At the same time, the top 1% increased their wealth by $21 trillion. So they weren't happy just to have the $20 trillion that they got. They also reached into your pocket and mine and took an extra $900 billion. So now we have the situation today where 400 Americans own more wealth than the bottom 150 million Americans. But if you look at the stats from the Fed, and this is where it just gets mind-boggling. I mean, this the Dallas Morning News finance columnist Scott Burns wrote this up, but it's based on information from the Feds, from the Fed. He said, here are the basics. From 2013 to 2016, the top 10% of households increased their share of total wealth from an amazing 75.3% to a stunning 77.2%. That's a share gain of 1.87% just three years. In other words, if they continue to gain share at that rate, in other words, if the rich continue to get richer and richer at the expense of the poor and the middle class, if they continue to gain share at that rate, they will have the remaining 22.8% of net worth held by the other 90% in just 12 more surveys. Each survey is three years. So in 33 years, the top 10% of Americans will own 100% of all the wealth in the country. 100%. This is the trend line for Reaganomics. The bottom 90%, everyone else is going to have, you know, net negative, you know, like, as, as is the case for the majority, the bottom 40% of Americans own nothing. They are in debt. They have student loans, they have credit cards, they have mortgages, but none of it exceeds their asset base, the value of their home or their cars and things. And right now, right-wing billionaires like Donald Trump are cheering this on. They're calling for more tax cuts on rich people, less power for working people through the continuing destruction of unions and fighting things like the minimum wage. 
They tell us the problem isn't corporate monopoly or the rich taking everything for themselves. Oh, no, that's, that's not the problem. Don't look over there. Don't look at the, at the Walton family. Just, just the Walton family having more wealth than the bottom 40% of Americans. Don't look at that. No, no. It's those brown people coming from south of the border. It's those black people who want to take your jobs, white people. It's black people wanting affirmative action. They want to, they want to step up. They want reparations. And it's women wanting equality in the workplace. The people that uh, Limbaugh calls feminazis. These people, these, these uh, Republican toadies for the top 1% and the corporations that made them that way, these Republican toadies are more than willing to tear up the fabric of American society. I mean, look at how billionaire Trump has been doing this. How billionaire DeVos, the education secretary, is tearing up our schools. How billionaire Wilbur Ross, is, our commerce secretary, is trying to tear up the American workplace. They're more than willing to do this for what they think will be a permanent position of wealth and power. If we could just wipe out the middle class, that pesky middle class. You'll recall back in 1951, and Russell Kirk wrote The Conservative Mind, the book that galvanized Barry Goldwater, that woke up William F. Buckley that created the modern conservative movement. And the main point of that book, I, I actually, I was reading that book this weekend. Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind, 1951. The main point of that book was that if the middle class, now keep in mind, 1951, the middle class was just emerging. The main point of that book was if the middle class ever gets wealthy enough, you are going to see minorities start demanding rights. You are going to see women in rebellion. You're going to see young people who are talking back to their elders and, and being promiscuous. You're going to see the decay of the American family and the destruction of American society. That was his sales pitch. The remedy? Reaganomics. Destroy the middle class. And that's exactly what they did. But the result has not been an increase in stability in America. The result has been people who formerly thought, hey, I'll have a better life than my parents did. That's the way things go, right? Instead, those people are now saying, you know, I'm having to live in my parents' basement. Why is that? Oh, Donald Trump tells me it's because brown people are coming across the border. Or because black people are being catapulted over me in an application for college. They're fueling class resentment. They're fueling regional resentment. Oh, it's those people in the cities. Remember Trump attacking the cities? Rural America is like, oh, we're the victims of the cities? This was the sales pitch in the South, by the way, by the Southern politicians who were arguing for secession. Who are the bad guys? Who was hurting the South? Oh, it wasn't the cotton gin. Actually, that was one of the major things that, that, that deformed the economy of the South in the 1830s. But, but no, no, it wasn't that. It was the New York bankers. The war against the northern bankers, right. They're fueling class resentment. They're fueling regional resentment. The cherry on the top of the cake, racial resentment. And they're using that resentment to split us apart so we won't notice that they are picking our pockets. 
They're encouraging us to hate each other. So we will point our fingers at each other instead of at them. This is nuts. And we need to call it out for what it is. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's up? So the idea is that if we turn all our power over to the economy, over to capitalism, I guess we don't need a political economy. We'll just have an economy because politics will become redundant and we'll live in paradise. Right. And, you know, that was what was sold to the middle class. You're going to be rich. It's going to trickle down. This is going to be... Yeah, this is Reagan's sales pitch. Cheese. It didn't work, and now they have to look for an, a scapegoat and, of course, they want to blame minority groups and stoke racism while they continue to dismantle the safety net, dismantle our regulatory agencies, dismantle every kind of regulation that has to do with the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, you know, we need to realize there is no democracy unless there's economic democracy. Yep. So if you squeeze the middle class and reduce it, you're just, you know, you're going to come up with a totalitarian state or a colonial empire or whatever you want to call it, but it's not going to be democracy. And they can't get that through their thick skull because they don't want to. They've benefited off of it, including the media has benefited off of it. You know, there's a cadre of people in Washington, D.C. that just are living off of the carcass of what was a once great nation, and they want to dismantle it further and make us hate one another and just self-destruct while they build themselves little walls around their own gated communities and sit back and laugh. They, they don't really give a, sh a rat's ass about you, me, or anybody. And yeah. I feel very strongly about that. And I think that that is behind the whole thing is, is just the concentration of economic power and how it translates to political power. And we need to break that. You said it very well, John. And, and I, I'm paraphrasing from memory from John, uh, excuse me, from Franklin Roosevelt's um, 1936 speech in New York City at Madison Square Garden. He said, these economic royalists will tell you that that political freedom is everybody's business, but they will also tell you that economic freedom is nobody's business or is their business. And then he went on to say, they will tell you that you have the right to vote, but they will not tell you that you have the right to work, which is exactly what you're talking about. If we don't have economic liberty in this country, we don't have political liberty. And when you're at the point now where the bottom 90% of Americans have 22% of the country's wealth, and in mm -hmm. 33 years, the bottom 90% of Americans will have 0% of the country's wealth because of this trend line that started with the bottom 90% having over half of America's wealth when Reagan came into office. Yep. This, this trend line is, unless we go back to Keynesian economics, this is going to get worse and worse and worse, and it's going to inspire more and more and more killers who don't realize that it was the billionaire class and the corporations and the tax cuts and the Republicans who caused their distress, and they think it's being caused by brown people and black people and gay people and women, and pick the group that they're most easily triggered by. John, well said. You're listening to Tom Hartman. You know, sometimes folk remedies and old home remedies really work. You know, uh, taking apple cider vinegar, for example, to deal with leg cramps, that actually works. But trying to get rid of the bags under your eyes with hemorrhoid creams or tea bags, mm, 
that doesn't work. But what does work is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in just minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to triplexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get my discount. That's triplexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM. Michael in Bangor, Maine. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind? Tom, thanks for not saying Bangor. You're welcome. <laughs> Long-time listener to your show, I am sort of your classic 18th century liberal. I know there's a lot of confusion these days between 21st century liberals and 18. But anyway, one of the things that sort of disturbs me, and I listen to progress a lot, is that there's a conflation between people who are white in the United States as being fascist, but then there is no conflation between socialism being just as totalitarian, at least in terms of what's happened in historical times. And I just wish I could see a little bit more discussion. Instead of sort of mirroring or just focusing on whites and racism, which is obviously a problem, I'm not playing it down, there are other types of isms that are happening on the left, in the center. Michael, let me, let me be very clear about something. The government of the Soviet Union, as reinvented by Lenin and then Stalin, they call themselves socialist. They call themselves communist. I frankly don't think they were either one. I don't think Marx would have recognized it. It was a right-wing totalitarian government. It used violence and the threat of violence against its own people in order to keep right. people in line. And to a, a substantial extent, that has also been true in a number of other countries that are, quote, socialist. You could, you could make that same charge against Castro and Cuba, particularly in the early days, and you could make that same charge. And, and I think Cuba is actually, you know, transforming itself into more of a democratic socialist country, but, you know, that's a whole other conversation. And, and, and Hugo Chavez right. and, and Maduro in Venezuela. Nobody, literally nobody, and not one single democratic politician in the United States, even so-called far-left Bernie Sanders, who's not as far-left as Franklin Roosevelt, who proposed that housing and a job should be considered a right in the United States, just like education and health care. He wanted all four of those things to be considered rights that would be provided by the government lacking you know, the ability of, the, of, of capitalism to provide those things. Even Bernie right. doesn't go that far. There is not a single Democratic politician in America who is advocating the kind of socialism and communism that we saw back then. Democratic socialism is what you have in Canada. Democratic socialism is what you have in all of the European countries. That's what they call it there. And that is where you have a strong social safety net where the, where the government provides health care, at the very least, and education, essentially for free. Uh, obviously, nothing's for free. We all pay for it with our taxes, but provides it at a lower cost than the, than the so-called free market would, than capitalism would, because there's nobody skimming money off the top. And, and, and also encourages 
competition and capitalism. And that is what the Democrats are proposing. So it seems to me, Michael, that you're bringing up something that's a complete straw man argument. No, I'm not trying to bring up a straw man argument because the problem is I disagree with you, by the way. Name one Democrat who has ever said that they want the United States to be like Soviet Union. Well, why would they say that? That would be self-defeating. They would say that if they believed that. You're asserting that there are Democrats who want the United States to be like the Soviet Union or Cuba. I'm saying name one. Okay, Jill Stein. Jill Stein is not a Democrat. She's the head of the Green Party. But that's not my point. My point is is that there are people who are... And she's not elected. She's never been elected to anything. I understand, but there are people on the left who are... And I don't think Jill Stein is calling for America to be like the Soviet Union. I, you know, I, well, I, I heard her saying that. Well, you know, I've I, heard, I'm not here to defend Jill Stein, but I'm, okay. I'm saying, Michael, I realize that the message that you're getting on right wing hate radio and on Fox News I, and, and out of Trump's mouth, that the message you're getting is that Democrats want to embrace a Soviet style state. And you're getting that from the Koch brothers, from FreedomWorks around, you know, health care. And in fact, that was the message no, that I'm they not, were. I don't listen when they, to them. When I they were, when they were you know, pumping them. the Tea Party back in the day and, and paying, you know, having these $300,000 buses take poor, confused, you know, boomers around to say, get your government hands off my damn Medicare. They were basically saying this is Soviet style socialism. And it's a lie. It's just a simple lie. There are no Democrats who are proposing anything even remotely close to Soviet-style socialism. In their most radical proposals, they're proposing things that Canada already has, which is education that you can that you can easily pay for and health care that's covered, you know, where we're all in a giant pool with health care so it can be provided at a low cost and high quality. You can do that with capitalism, too, if you have faith in the system. No, you can't. And I point out crimes of big pharma, the crimes of the insurance industry, the fact that you've got one insurance company, United Healthcare, that has the two last two CEOs both took over a billion dollars out of that company, and every penny of that was United Healthcare saying to somebody, and it could have been you, Michael, no, you can't have that new expensive drug to cure your hep C, or no, you can't have that operation because we don't want to pay for it, or because you had a pre-existing condition, or because you didn't fill out your forms right. You and I both know that capitalism, when it's applied to things that are the public good tends to basically extract money from the public, which is what capitalism does. I mean, that's its job, and it's fine if it's making blue jeans or computers. I'm all in favor of that, right? But if it has to do with the public good, things like health care, things like education, over and over and over again, when you turn those things over to capitalist systems, what you end up with is people being ripped off. Well, I, I, this is what the kind of discussion that I would like to see more people having. I disagree with you. I think that the redistribution of wealth, which was, is, which is what is at the basis of everything that the Democrats are arguing, whether you want to call it socialism or not, when you have the markets regulated without any uh, notion of free market that you're going to redistribute, who is making the decisions to redistribute? Michael, there's no such thing as a free market, number one. And number two, you're talking about redistributing income. Well, there's no such thing as a pure free market, but there is as much a free market as you can try to make without having the excesses that you are talking about. Since Reaganism, since we we changed from... Well, hang on just a second here. You've raised two things now. Since we changed from FDRism to Reaganism, from an economic policy promoted by John Maynard Keynes to an economic policy promoted by Milton Friedman, what we have seen since Reagan 
became president is the transfer of something on the order of six or seven trillion dollars of wealth out of the pockets of the middle class and into the pockets of the top one percent. That is absolutely undisputable. So if you want to talk about transfer of wealth, it's going the wrong way from my point of view. The reason for that is not capitalism as much as what we have. No, the reason for that is that capitalists have rigged the tax structure by buying politicians. Well, that's always going to happen, whether you're in the communism or... No, that's, this is, all, this is my second point, Michael. You would not want to go to a football game that did not have referees enforcing the rules. It would not be interesting. It would not be fair. And in capitalism, we have to have... You know, capitalism only functions well when there is competition. And when what? Reagan started deregulating capitalism in the United States, what he basically did away with is competition. You've got four or five companies who own the airline industry, who own the, the internet service provider industry, who own the television industry, who own the radio industry, who own the agriculture industry. I mean, name an industry, transportation, name an industry that's not dominated by, at the most, five companies. That is anti-competitive. It's making it almost impossible for small and medium-sized businesses to grow and prosper. And when they do, the business plan now is get to the point where you can be bought out quickly before one of these big companies squashes you like a bug. That is anti This this whole deregulation thing is destroying capitalism. Now, wait a second. There's a difference between easing regulatory stuff and enforcing the antitrust laws, which is something we don't... The antitrust laws are regulation. I didn't say that some regulation isn't good. Well, that you know, in 1982, the, Reagan, Reagan officially under- stopped enforcing the antitrust laws, and he called that deregulation. And what did we get out of that? We got an explode the M&A, the mergers and acquisition mania that, that happened throughout the Reagan administration. Right now, there are 50% fewer public companies in the United States, 50% fewer publicly traded companies than there were in 1980. Why is that? Because of consolidation, because of Reagan's deregulation. And that's not good for capitalism, Michael. The bottom line is I agree with you about putting together as much competition, free market as we can, regulated by good common sense. I support No, it's regulated by government. I support, you can't I support have capitalism without government creating the framework, just like you can't have a football game without the NFL saying, here's the rules. Well, I understand, but there are Democrats, too. Uh, Tom, the problem isn't that you're not identifying problems. The problem from my point of view, is that it's always the right that's the problem. It's not the corporatist in, in like Hillary Clinton. If you went after her like you went after the people on the right, we might have some semblance of commonality. There it's are corporatists, Michael, I'll give you, there are corporatists in both parties. But Good. your party, Thank the you. Republican Party, is entirely corporatist, and the Democratic Party is only about Disagree half that. corporatist. That's all right. Well, outside of outside, well, even Jason Amash or Justin Amash, well, he's me. not a Republican. he's a libertarian. By the way, I'm not yeah, a Republican. He's... I'm an independent. Okay, I got tired of the Republican Party. Yeah. Okay, but my point is that corporatism, yes, is destroying the United States and is destroying capitalism and is rewriting the rules. And a lot of it can be traced back to the Supreme Court's 1976 Buckley versus Vallejo decision that formed the basis of Citizens United. And that's something where perhaps you and I agree. But when we get in these arguments about regulation, deregulation, start using this kind of language, I think that we just missed the point. Anyhow, Michael, it's been an interesting conversation. I appreciate the call and thank you for a thoughtful conversation. 
Tom Harbin here with you, helping you win the water cooler wars. Let's check in with Talk Media News. On the line with us is Bob Nay, the author of Sideswipe, former congressman from Ohio. Bob, what's going on in the world? Well, thank you, Tom. This is a report from a Latinx organizing nonprofit called Magente. Okay. It comes from that nonprofit. Okay. This company is called Palantir. And it has $1 billion of work with the Defense Department, $175 million in business with the Justice Department, $94 million in active contracts with the Department of Homeland Security. Most of that's for ICE, all right? Yeah. Immigration services, of course. Now, what does Palantir do? It provides software known as Investigative Case Management, or ICM which Magente, in this report that they put out, says was used to target the family members of unoccupied minors. So what it does is it collects volumes of data, and it often results in the arrests of collaterals as targets, is what they're saying. So what it does is it's a precision tool that it sells to the government, and it targets migrants. Hmm. Now, it also points to relationships with Peter Thiel. A libertarian billionaire. Yeah, Palantir's co-founder and a big Trump supporter, all right? Huh. Well, what it means is there are connections into this company, Teal. Palantir's one of them, and there's billions in contracts, and they've been placed in key strategy points within the White House, within the government, within the Defense Department, and out comes these contracts, and the contracts are for this software. So are you oh, suggesting wow. that the reason why companies associated with Peter Thiel are getting government money is because he has, or his companies have placed his executives inside the administration and those executives are influencing contracts? Right. It is an information gathering source that has been used to go after people to find out where they are, if they're here legally or not in the country, and it's been used by ICE to do that, the 680 people rounded up by ICE uh, immigration. This is a tracking system. They even say this company knows a lot more about everybody in this country than we know about them. So I wanted to throw it on the radar screen that nobody knew about this company. Nobody knew how it was tied until the raids happened, and somehow this nonprofit was able to actually dig this up. Fascinating stuff. I'll have to go looking for the story. Bob Nay with Talk Media News. Thank you, Bob. So now there is a bed that not only helps you get to sleep by adjusting itself to exactly the right temperature for you, and not only helps you stay asleep all night long as we go through these cycles of sleep where our body actually cools down and warms up and our bed needs to adjust to it. Otherwise, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night in a, in a sweat or freezing. Not only does that and throughout the night keeps you the right temperature, but then in the morning wakes you up by changing temperature. No more alarm clocks. This is not science fiction. This is the new Pod by 8 Sleep. The Pod by 8 Sleep is a high-tech bed designed specifically to help you achieve optimal sleep fitness. There's a reason why Time Magazine calls 8 one of the best inventions of the year. It combines dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to enhance your rest and your recovery. It learns your sleep habits and then adjusts the temperature automatically. That means if you like the bed cool and your partner likes the bed warm, now you can have both at the same time in a crazy comfortable bed and no more alarm clocks. You can get the pod, the most advanced sleep system in the market at 8sleep.com tom. Try the pod for 100 nights. If you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup. 
It is a bet after all. Once again, that's 8sleep.com slash Tom. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. 8sleep.com slash Tom. You're listening to Tom Hartman. David in San Francisco. Hey, David, thanks for listening to AM 910. What's up? probably told you this before. One of my great, great, great grandfathers signed the Declaration of Independence, John Hart from Mm -hmm. New Jersey. And we were always raised to understand that the old aristocrats from 1776 never quit. They never quit. They've always been hanging around trying to trick us into, you know, various schemes that'll get us back into colonial rule by London. And they were the ones that uh, seduced the South into secession. When Lincoln figured it out, he pulled an embargo against England, and so they dropped out quick, and it was a matter of time until the South came back in line. But the idea of shock troops left behind from the Civil War, like the Klan, then bringing Nazis into America. So we've got at least three different groups, aristocrats, Klan, and Nazis, who have been playing America, trying to steer us down the wrong path. Freedom isn't free, that we've got to obey some, you know, some Lord's uh, wishes in order to, to live free. Uh, you know, it's preposterous. We, the people, have the right to run our own lives, and we don't need some highfalutin, man-on-the-hill type management of our nation. Tell that to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has said that the amount of free speech that you have, David, is defined by how much money you have. And the amount of free speech that Charles Koch has is defined by how much money he has. And guess what? He's got a lot more money than you do. Well, and it's stolen money, and it's it's tax-free money. He he isn't patriotic enough, or those cokes aren't patriotic enough to pay into making sure that we have a county hospital or good. Uh, well, they don't. They, you know, Coke doesn't want to be, and he's got a philosophy that backs that up. But rather than personalizing this to him, I think the the larger point is that as long as the Supreme Court decision, this 1976 Buckley decision that was amplified in 20. 10, I guess it was, with Citizens United, until those decisions are overturned, either by changing the composition of the Supreme Court, by explicit legislation out of Congress, or by a constitutional amendment, which would be the most desirable way to do it. Until those are overturned, we're going to continue to have a situation where politics are controlled by money. It's, it's like whoever has the most money gets to control our politics. Well, right, and the mercantilism, though, the angle is whether it's honest mercantilism, which is not possible, or whether it's, uh, you know, it's just fake numbers. Yeah. And so whether or not we want to dance to somebody's fake credit rating or fake collateral or the currency exchange rate or, yeah, so there's yeah. a lot I, of fake numbers. I get call. it, David. I get it. We're, we're out of time. Thank you. Thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We're throwing around a lot of terms here, but I think the bottom line is because of Reaganomics, the rich are getting richer and everybody else is getting screwed, and the rich are telling us, oh, it's those brown people. Tom in Media, Pennsylvania. Hey, Tom, what's up? My frustration is for all the, the talk that's going back and forth between both parties, there's not a party that is really focusing, you know, completely on the middle class. You know, I've seen this for a while. And, and sometimes when the, I mean, when uh, President Obama, who I voted for the first time, had those two years where he could have put in card check, they didn't. And 
the, the, of course, the Republicans, they want to crush the unions as they're doing a pretty good they don't job. They just want to. They've, they've been doing it ever since 1981. And, and by the way, yeah, the entire Democratic Party, well, actually, the majority of the Democratic Party got maybe 20 guys, 20 Democrats in Congress who are basically Republicans. But outside of them, they are the outliers. Outside of them, the entire Democratic Party is in support of raising the minimum wage, in support of extending long-term unemployment insurance, in support of rolling back Taft-Hartley or making it easier to join a union, in favor of card check. Yeah, Obama didn't get that passed. You know, he decided that health care was more important and more consequential. That was a decision he made. I'm not going to second-guess him. I wasn't president. But, Tom, well, to, say that, to say that there's not a political party that's on the side of the average working person is simply wrong. I mean, they had Karchek, and you said he didn't do it. Raising the minimum wage is going to hurt the middle class through inflation. That's not true. That's not true. The minimum wage was put into place in 1935 or 1936. It has been raised 38 times since then. Would you please identify for me any year in which raising the minimum wage caused an increase in inflation? I guarantee you that if there was such a year, Tom... You would have that number memorized because it would have been repeated 5,000 times a week by the Republican Party. Raising the minimum wage does not lead to inflation. If anything, it's the other way around. Raising the minimum wage stimulates the economy because it is minimum wage workers who spend 100% of their income. So when you raise the minimum wage, all of that money goes into aggregate demand. It goes into purchasing things. And those things then create demand, which causes factories to have more economic activity, which causes them to hire more people, which in turn raises wages. But because there's more demand, there's also more competition. And the consequence of competition is that prices go down, not up. Raising the minimum wage not only doesn't cause inflation, it actually works against inflation. Well, what does it do if you double the minimum wage to $15 an hour? If you don't give commensurate increases to people making already fifteen dollars, twenty, thirty dollars an hour, the price of goods will go up. Not because hey, nobody has to give market. commensurate anything to anybody. That's that's something that the marketplace works out. And B, if you look at at states that have raised the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, or regions like you know SeaTac, what you find is that there is no local inflation. Instead, what you have is local prosperity because people are buying more things, which means that the businesses are more prosperous, which means that they're having to hire more people, which means that more people are working, which means that the economy is growing. Every single 38 times there have been minimum wage increases in the United States. Over a three-year period following each one of those minimum wage increases, we saw a spurt of GDP growth. We saw an increase in GDP growth without inflation. The formula that the Republicans put forward that this will cause inflation completely ignores the impact of aggregate demand because they don't believe in demand-side economics. They don't believe in Adam Smith. Oh, I see Kyle, our Republican troll, is on the line. Hey, Kyle, what's on your mind today? <laughs> uh, nice uh, intro there. Uh, recently, I kind of thought of why I think from our side that would be the case. And really what it comes down to is most working class people don't have a huge surplus in their budget and are making all these decisions on what to 
pay for. And, uh, All right. So doesn't it really piss you off, Kyle, that the Republicans are doing everything they can to destroy a health care system that might be less expensive and replace it with something that's more expensive? And that if you get sick, you're guaranteed to get thrown off your insurance and you're guaranteed to get hit with dying deductibles. Doesn't it piss you off that they that they have deregulated the banks so that they can rob you? They can they, they can you know jack your insurance, your interest rates as high as almost 30 percent. Doesn't it upset you that the Republicans fight every every effort by working people to organize into unions so that they can have better pay? Doesn't it upset you that they fight any increase in the minimum wage? I mean, all these things that hit working people in the United States, the Republicans all say, screw you, Kyle. They're saying, we're, we're here for the billionaires. They pay our paycheck. I have a two-part answer of why I think, you know, why it's against the interest. As long as people are having a hard time making all their bills, and at the same point in time, one of their biggest bills is paying taxes, and then I'm going to get to the second part, which ties right into it, is that, you know, I'm a carpenter, self-employed. Kyle, you want to see your taxes go down? No, just go back to go point. back to let the tax rates we point. had before Ronald Reagan cut the top tax rate from 91 percent down to 25 percent for billionaires. What Reagan raised tax rates on working people 18 times. Taxes have gone up massively on working people, mostly under Republican administrations over the years, while they've gone down on the really rich. If you're concerned about your tax bill and you're making less than four hundred thousand dollars a year, you need to be talking to the Republicans, not the Democrats, Kyle. Democrats have had lots of chances to implement their plan, but let me make my second point is that and every other contractor I know in the area and with the Internet, you talk to contractors from all around the country, you literally can't find new people to enter the trades. And at the same point in time, there's other people who can't cut. You can make $25 an hour if you just get up to speed pretty like in a year or two. Right. And you can't find people to fill those jobs. But also the talking points here constantly are... People can't make their bills. People can't make their bills. They need this program, this program, this program. Well, let's start at first before we say people can't cover their expenses by filling the jobs. Kyle, are you telling me? uh, Hang on just a second here, Kyle. I mean, we we recently had our our call screener went back to college, and she was a teacher, and she wanted to get her master's degree. She went back to college. She couldn't afford to be a teacher, so she came here to be a call screener. Anyhow, she went back, and so we had to hire a new call screener. And we're paying $15 an hour. It's a part-time job. It's three hours a day, right? It's just, it's a, really four hours a day. We put an ad in the local paper, and Portland's a fairly expensive labor market, much like Chicago is, and we probably got 100 people applying for that job. Are you telling me that you're offering $25 an hour and you can't get people to come to work for you? In my area, it starts off, if you are unskilled but you'll labor, you'll get 15 16 maybe $18 an hour. If you get up to speed, you can make 25 to 40 I mean, 40 is if you're up, sure. up to speed and good. But it happens time and time again. You get people, they get in, they'll start, they'll work for a while. Some of them will quit literally in a day or two. But as soon as it's like, okay, today we have to go get this work done in an attic, and it's, you know, 80 degrees, 90 degrees. It's hot in the attic. It really sucks. There, it's always you get to a job where it's like you get to the space. Okay, we got to work in a crawl space. We've got to, and eventually they all leave. And well, why don't you pay the hazardous duty pay and charge your clients more money for it? Well, they're, they're, I mean, if you want me to work in a crawl space, you know, I'm going to charge you an extra ten bucks an hour because I'm going to have to pay that ten bucks an hour to my employees. And maybe I mean it is it is. But what does this have to do with Donald Trump, Kyle, and why you'd vote for him? The point is. You were talking about what the platform should be, and everything is let's cover cost of families here, let's cover cost of families here to get back in the office. Well, the point is there's a whole bunch of us out there who are like, well, let's at least make sure all these positions are filled before we start covering expenses of people who say they can't afford it. There's jobs out there, and people won't fill them. So 
it's going to be really hard to say, okay, let's take... Kyle, there's not, a, there's not an American out there setting aside the 2 or 3% of people who are mentally ill and chronically homeless and things like that. Basically, there is not an American out there who won't do a job if they're appropriately paid. When John McCain was complaining about this back in the day, this was like 10 years ago or so, I was doing this show at the time, and he came out and he said, you know, we could be paying $50 an hour to people to pick lettuce in Arizona out in the fields and nobody would do the job. He had over 10,000 actual job applications, people willing to move to Arizona from all over the country to pick lettuce for 50 bucks an hour. And that's hard, brutal work. Talk to some contractors that you know and trust, so it's not me, the Republican troll, and see, and see that's the problem. You raise your price, raise your price. Next thing you know, you're not getting the job. So you get in this weird spot of, I can't get help if I raise your price too much, now you're not competitive. So you're, you're stuck. No, I, yeah, talk to people I, that aren't me. You can't fill these jobs. You, I mean, you'd have to hire probably 10 guys if you wanted okay. to have a good one. Kyle, I, I know I'm not your business consultant, but I still no, don't understand what that be. has to do with why you I'm would vote for Trump. Because all of your ideas for the platform for Democrats were, let's cover college costs, let's cover medical costs, let's cover this. Right, Canada can do it. Why can't we, Kyle? Is Canada better? Is that a better spot to live as Canada? Yeah, they have, people live longer in Canada. They have a longer lifespan than we do. Children are less likely to die in Canada. They have lower infant mortality. Mothers in childbirth are less likely to die. They have lower maternal mortality. Virtually every index of health is better in Canada. They have less mental illness. They have, these are all the symptoms of of a healthcare system and a culture and a society in collapse. They have a fraction of the poverty. Do you realize, Kyle, that one out of five American children goes to bed hungry at least, at least one night a month? And I have huge sympathy to any child. And that's not happening in Canada at all. And why can't we afford to be like Canada? Because we've got billionaires who are sucking all the cream off the top and telling the rest of us we should fight with each other. Okay, so I've been to Bullies on a tour, and the tour guide says they make fun of America. And this is a black person making fun of America that if you don't work in Belize, you don't eat. And it's on a tour, and they're making fun, not making fun, but... They're making the point to us of like, yeah, you guys come from a country where you can... What happened to our conversation work. about Canada? Now we're talking about Belize? I, I don't know why Canada can do it, but I'll tell you this. I, I can tell you why Canada can do it. They can do it the same reason Denmark can do it, the same reason Norway can do it, the same reason uh, uh, Sweden can do it, the same reason Germany can do it, the same reason France can do it, the same reason the United Kingdom well, can I mean, do it, the same reason I I you know, Hungary, the same reason Bulgaria, for God's sake, can do it, because they're civilized countries, they're developed countries who are not controlled by they're billionaires. They're controlled by right-wing billionaires. They are controlled by their people. Every developed country in the world, every developed country in the world offers college education in a way that you don't have to graduate with massive student debt unless you want to go to an elite college. And every developed country in the world offers health care to all of their citizens in a way that nobody goes bankrupt for being sick. And last year in the United States of America, 600,000 families went bankrupt because somebody got sick. The number of medical bankruptcies in Canada last year, zero. The number of medical bankruptcies in Germany last year, zero. The number of medical bankruptcies in France last year, zero. What's our problem? We've got Donald Trump and the Republican Party, Kyle. That's our problem. Thank you.
you know, the demands of the economy that we've had since Reagan, you know, as the middle class gets wiped out, more and more of us are working more and more hours and in many cases, more and more jobs and not getting quite as much sleep as we used to. And therefore, we end up with bags under our eyes. What do you do about that? Well, you know, A, try to get a better job, but B, what works is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TryPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America by Christopher Leonard. This is from the preface. On May 18, 1981, four Wall Street bankers traveled to Wichita, Kansas. They went there to make an offer to Charles Koch, the CEO of an obscure mid-size energy company. The bankers from Morgan Stanley wanted to convince Koch to take his family's company public, offering shares for sale on the New York Stock Exchange. Their deal was squarely in line with the conventional wisdom of corporate America at the time. Going public was seen as a natural progression for companies like Koch Industries, offering them access to big pools of money and promising enormous paydays for the existing team of executives. All it required from the CEO was to surrender control. Morgan Stanley, in return, would collect a small fortune in fees. Charles Koch was 45 years old. He had run Koch Industries since he was 32 when his father died suddenly. He was trim, tall, and had an athlete's build. He spoke quietly in meetings and seemed almost passive. The bankers laid out their plan to take Koch public. They revealed what, to most executives at least, might have been the most significant detail. If Charles Koch agreed to the deal, he could earn $20 million overnight. The bankers seemed incredulous when they prepared a confidential memo about Koch's reaction. He does not want this cash, the memo reported. Charles Koch calmly explained to them why their offer made no sense. His company was breathtakingly profitable. It operated in vital, deeply complex corners of the American energy industry. During the 1980s, Koch Industries was the largest purchaser and transporter of U.S. crude oil. It owned an oil refinery. It employed teams of commodity traders who bought and sold a wildly diverse menu of raw materials and financial products, from gasoline to paper futures contracts. This might have encouraged most CEOs to take their company public. Koch Industries, however, did not want outsiders to know how much money its traders were earning. Taking the company public would expose too many of its secrets. The memo said, certain of Koch's commodity traders are particularly worried that their high salaries, once disclosed to the public, would be used against them by their trading partners. Secrecy was a strategic necessity for Koch Industries. Charles Koch did not want to surrender it. He also didn't want to surrender control. He had a specific, clear vision of how to run his company, and he didn't need Wall Street investors to interfere. If the bankers expected Charles Koch to go along with the conventional wisdom of their time, then they, like so many outsiders, did not understand him. Beneath his low-key veneer, Charles Koch was, at his core, a fighter. He had unmovable ideas about how things should be, and he did not back down when challenged. 
When he was challenged by his own brothers for control of Koch Industries, he fought them in a bitter legal battle that lasted decades. When he was challenged by members of a powerful labor union during his first years as CEO, he fought them even as they committed an act of industrial sabotage that nearly destroyed Koch's oil refinery. When the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice launched a criminal investigation into Koch Industries' oil gathering business, Charles Koch fought them with every legal and political tool at his disposal. When a liberal Congress and President Barack Obama sought to impose regulations on the fossil fuel industry to control greenhouse gas emissions, Charles Koch fought them in ways that changed U.S. politics. In each of these fights, Charles Koch prevailed. When Charles Koch dismissed the bankers in 1981, it was just a small skirmish in the larger war to control Koch Industries. After prevailing in that fight, he created a company that was true to his vision. He avoided the snares that entangled many publicly traded companies that report their financial results to investors every three months. Koch Industries didn't have to think quarter to quarter. The company thinks year to year. An internal think tank and deal-making committee called the Development Group will sometimes think through a business deal on a timeline measured in decades. This long-term view made Coke more nimble where other companies stumbled. In 2003, for example, Coke Industries bought a group of money-losing fertilizer plants when no publicly traded company was willing to take the risk. Today, those plants are as profitable as a broken ATM machine that spews out cash around the clock. Unlike publicly traded companies, Koch Industries does not pay out rich in dividends to investors. Charles Koch insists on reinvesting at least 90% of the company's profits, fueling its constant expansion. This strategy laid the foundation for decades of continuous growth. Koch Industries expanded continuously by purchasing other companies and branching out into new industries. It specialized in the kind of businesses that are indispensable to modern civilization, but which most consumers never directly encounter. The company is embedded in the hidden infrastructure of everyday life. Millions of people use Coke's products without ever seeing Coke's name attached. Coke refines and distributes fossil fuels from gasoline to jet fuel on which the global economy is dependent. Coke is the world's third largest producer of nitrogen fertilizer, which is the cornerstone of our modern food system. Coke makes the synthetic materials used in baby diapers, waistbands, and carpets. It makes the chemicals used for plastic bottles and pipes. It owns Georgia Pacific, which makes the wall panels, beams, and plywood required to build homes and office buildings. It makes napkins, paper towels, stationery, newspaper, and personal hygiene products. Coke Industries owns a network of commodities trading offices in Houston, Moscow, Geneva, and elsewhere, which are the circulatory system of modern finance. The book Cokeland by Christopher Leonard. A, uh, a new fundraising email that I got from the Donald Trump campaign offering to sell me for, I don't know, 30 bucks or something, some plastic straws. Official Donald Trump plastic straws. So you don't have to put up with those paper straws, those liberal, they literally called them liberal paper straws. Right number one. And number two, at the same time, Arkansas is outlawing calling a veggie burger a veggie burger. Because, you know, they got triggered, right? Veggie burger? Oh, we can't have that. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court, back in 2012, in their decision in National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius, said that red states don't have to expand Medicaid to all of their citizens who are working people but making under roughly $14,000 a year. 
The states don't have to do that. And as a result of that, according to a new study from the National Bureau of Economic Research, based on actual government statistics, 16,000 people, 15,600 people have died as a result of, uh, like Rick Scott, when he was governor of Florida, refused to expand Medicaid, and Charlene Dill died because she was cutting her heart medication drugs in half. This obscenity, it's just amazing. Albert in Los Angeles. Hey, Albert, what's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. I want to talk about socialism and what it means with insurance. Tom, quick question. Have you ever gotten your money back if you have not gotten sick? No, because insurance doesn't work that way. Insurance is all about spreading the risk. Right, it goes to pay for somebody else. So when I hear these conservatives talking about socialism all the time, what they're talking about is your money going to pay for somebody else which is the exact same system that we already have in an inefficient way. If Barack Obama would sit next to me, I would ask him, Mr. Obama, what does the health insurance company do to make you get better? And I would tell him that's rhetorical. The answer is nothing. I pay them, and then they pay the money that I give them to the doctor and take a cut out of that. So if the aggregate of the health insurance market prior to Obamacare is $100 and the insurance cut is 10%, then the individual mandate, or we all pay into the system, it goes up to $200. If their cut is still 10%, they just made $10 more. So yep. under his system, the insurance companies got richer, and I'm validated by if you go look at their quarterly reports. Oh, their profits there, have been higher to- than they've ever been, Albert. Yeah, yeah, excellent points all, and that's a great talking point for Democrats. I hope they pick it up. Thank you, Albert. Kathy in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Hey, Kathy, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. You know, I don't know if I can survive another 15 months of this, but... Anyway, we've got uh, to push through, Kathy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this country's been, you know, through hell and back. We had a civil war. We went through World War II. We went through the Great Depression. We'll pull yeah. through this. But I have a question. I'm a CPA. Mm-hmm. So I understand finances, debits, credits, whatever. But the other thing is, I'm also a historian. And my question is does Congress, both houses, have a fiduciary responsibility to the taxpayers and the money that is spent? There's nothing specific or explicit about that in the Constitution, to the best of my knowledge. That I know, but I don't have control over how my taxes are spent. Right. But what gets me is the cutting of social programs. Most of the cutting is in spite of Barack Obama by this president. Right. But at the same time, we have paid over $104 million for him to go play golf. Right. And he used to criticize Obama for this. He's, he played more oh. golf in his first year than Obama did in eight. You know, I'm a statistician. I understand numbers. I dream numbers. So I understand what he did to Obama. And the hypocrisy is the main DNA of Republicans and this president. Right. You asserted that you don't have control over how your tax dollars are spent. In actual point and fact, I mean, all appropriations have to begin in the House of Representatives. In Hendersonville, North Carolina, you may be represented by a Republican, so you may feel like you're not represented. But if you want a pressure point that you can assert energy into that has to do with how your money is spent, it's your member of the House of Representatives. Which is Mark Meadows, and the man is... Oh, he's a wholly owned subsidiary of Coke Industries. Oh, yeah. I went to a town hall, Mm -hmm. and the way he conducts his town halls is 
you have to write your question down, right. and they may at, they may ask or read the question. Yeah, that's cowardly. <laughs> you know, oh, I, well, I get it. Uh, Kathy, we, I got to run. If you have another hour, I can tell you what about Mark Meadows. But it's now I hear your music. So. Yeah. Well, the next week, call back. I'd be fascinated to hear. Kathy, thank you for the call, and thanks for watching Free Speech TV. Continuing with our conversations of the day, Van in Sacramento. Hey, Van, what's on your mind? Sort of an argument for people to justify their support of Trump because they say, well, the alternative is to vote for these revolutionaries who want to give all our tax money to the poor people of the world and and so on. They're essentially concerned that it's the road to hell, despite good intentions. I, I just want to know what you would say to these people low information as they may be. I would say that if you look back at the time when taxes on corporations and really rich people were the highest, they were, you know, 90% for rich people, around 45% for corporations. That was the period from 1940, basically, until 1980, that we had the greatest prosperity, the greatest growth in wealth, the greatest growth among, you know, all classes across America, the, you know, the, the greatest political stability all kinds of good stuff came out of that. And when Reagan stopped, started crashing taxes, it started to destroy all those things. David in Los Angeles. Hey, David, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? If I may have 20 seconds, I've summarized your rant, and I think I've added two important points. Go so for it. In, in 33 years, the 1% will own all of the wealth if trends continue. Right actually, now, it's the 10%, but yes, go ahead. The 10%. Okay, thanks. Right now, the bottom 90% owns 20% of all of the wealth. When Reagan became president, the bottom 90% owned 90% of all of the wealth. So in 30 No, it was actually a little more than half. And right now it's 22 and, and Yeah, and right now it's 22%. Just, I'm, I'm sorry to correct you in real time here, David, but I, you know, I, I'm okay. guessing That's this okay, is, these here, corrections here are not going to change the direction you're going with your argument, right? Here come the points. Who are they blaming this on, on the 1% owned Fox News? We don't stress that Fox News is owned by the 1%. Right, so by a billionaire. And they're blaming it on black and brown people coming here to take your jobs. In 33 years, there won't be any jobs. Well, there'll still be jobs. They just won't pay enough that you can afford to own your own house or own a car. Or You know, everything is going to be rented. Everything's going to be leased. Everybody's going to be living hand to mouth. Everybody, or 90% of us. According to the guy on 60 Minutes, the artificial intelligence genius, because of artificial intelligence, by 2050, 80% of all existing jobs on Earth will be gone. There will be new jobs, yes, but... The 1% is going to have all of the wealth. They're going to blame it on the black and brown people, but there aren't going to be jobs except for the very few. Yeah. They're, I get what you're saying, and, and I'm not quite as apocalyptic about, you know, the, the advent of AI. I mean, there were a lot of people who freaked out when the steam engine came along, you know, in the 18-whatever-it-was, 1820s or thereabouts. The cotton gin was supposed to, you know, be the end of the world. <laughs> the, 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 industrial revolu- the later Industrial Revolution, the 1880s, 1890s, the invention of the car. Each one of these technological advances, from the invention of the computer, you know, now there's no longer going to be a need for office workers, et cetera, et cetera. Every one of these inventions, there was major freakout around it. You know, the Luddites in England following Mr. Ludd, who was out there smashing machinery with, you know, tire irons. I mean, you know, this was their thing. Go smash the machinery because it's going to take our jobs. 
And yet the jobs, you know, there's still jobs around. I, I, I'm but cons- I, think, I think we should stress that Fox News is owned by the 1%. Yes. The people who watch Fox News hate the 1%, but they don't put it together that Fox News is 1%. I don't think they hate the 1% because the 1% are never mentioned on Fox News unless it's glowingly and lovingly because it's, of course, owned by billionaire Rupert Murdoch. But, you know, I get your point, David, and, and I don't disagree with it. Thank you very much for the call. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 